For the better part of a millennium, the city of Paris was more or less the same. Its layout, virtually unchanged since post-Roman slash early medieval times, was by the 19th century severely outdated and in desperate need of an upgrade. Narrow twisting streets, overcrowding, rampant crime, the spread of disease, decrepit wooden structures. Something had to be done. It was clear that the city couldn't continue in the direction it was going, but who would take on such a monumental task? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and bienvenue to this week's episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. And today we'll be taking a look at one of the biggest urban planning success stories in history, that of the Haussmann renovation of Paris. As of 2019, the population of the French capital stood at around 2.2 million inhabitants. It's a sprawling city of wide boulevards, gorgeous parks, and countless historic and cultural sites and museums. It's these attractions that draw upwards of 30 million visitors each year. But of course, the city wasn't always this way. Founded sometime between 250 BC and 225 BC by the Parisi, a Celtic tribe on the banks of the Seine, it began as a humble village that soon turned into a small town. These ancient founders constructed roads and bridges, even a fort, and minted coins out of gold and silver. Situated along the river, they grew rich through trade with other Celtic tribes, and eventually with the emerging power to their southeast in Italy, Rome. As Rome grew from a republic into an empire, the Romans eventually incorporated much of what's now France, including, of course, Paris, into their territory, creating a mixed Romano-Celtic identity known as Gallo-Roman that continues to define the ethnic French to this day. By the end of the Roman Empire in the late 5th century AD, Paris had grown into a substantial city, characterized by majestic basilicas, a type of early church, Roman baths, even an amphitheater, the remnants of which can still be seen in the city's 5th arrondissement. However, with the fall of Rome, the city fell into the hands of the Franks, a Germanic tribe from what's now western Germany. Their king, Clovis I, made the city his capital in 508, and while successive kings in his dynasty would move the capital elsewhere, the city continued to grow and prosper. By the medieval period, Paris had become the largest city in Europe, a veritable center of culture, learning, commerce, and Christianity. It also birthed the Gothic style of architecture, perhaps the most famous example being the famed Notre Dame Cathedral, built between 1163 and 1345. It was during this period that the city's original layout was formed. A prime example of a medieval European city, it was characterized by narrow, twisting streets of cobblestone, wooden structures, and severe urban density, with people living virtually on top of one another as well as side by side, with little space in between. As sophisticated waste management and plumbing were still centuries away, most people resorted to throwing their garbage and, shall we say, biological matter into the streets or else the river. Because of this, you could probably imagine that the city in those days wasn't exactly a walk through a rose garden. Despite Paris's mounting problems in regard to its population and urban planning, such issues wouldn't be addressed until the more humanist movements of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries. The first attested mention in print is from none other than the great French writer and philosopher Voltaire. In a treatise on the city itself, he complains that the markets, quote, established in narrow streets, showing off their filthiness, spread infection and cause continuing disorders. He goes on to argue that the government at the time, quote, invested in futilities rather than investing in public works. However, it would be the architectural theorist and historian, Quatremer de Cancy, who'd be the first to officially propose a solution. Just prior to the French Revolution, he approached the government with an idea to establish new public squares, or else widen existing ones, in each neighborhood of the city. In addition, he wished to pave new streets so as to alleviate congestion and even introduce the idea of constructing embankments along the Seine, something that had never been done in Paris's long and vast history. 
During the French Revolution, building upon his ideas, pun intended, a special commission of artists was created to draft a plan that would drastically alter the layout of the city, including, but not limited to, a wide boulevard that would form an essentially straight line from the Place de la Nation to the Louvre, a distance of some 3.7 miles, or 5.9 kilometers, with newly built squares and avenues extending from it in all different directions, built upon land confiscated from the church. Alas, these remained solely on paper, as the city naturally had greater priorities during the conflict. Even Napoleon Bonaparte had plans to rebuild the city. Indeed, the first civic project he undertook as emperor was the construction of a canal, which would provide fresh water to Parisians. In addition, he began work on the famous Rue de Rivoli, now one of the city's main thoroughfares, but was only able to extend it to the Louvre before his deposition. He famously quipped in his journal, written when he was in exile, quote, If only the heavens had given me twenty more years of rule and a little leisure, one would vainly search today for the old Paris. Nothing would remain of it but vestiges. With the restoration of the French monarchy in 1830, some attempts were made to address the problems with the city's severely outdated layout. Just three years into his reign, King Louis-Philippe appointed a new prefect, one Claude-Philibert Pactelot, in charge of undertaking civic projects and improvements. The prefect of the Seine, as the job title was officially called, was able to construct a better water supply system as well as new sewers, though they still emptied directly into the river, as well as some 112 miles, 180 kilometers of new pavement, a new street, the Rue Lobeau, and even a bridge that spans the Seine, the aptly named Pont Louis-Philippe. Throughout his tenure as prefect of the Seine, Barthelot put his stamp on the Parisian landscape in such diverse neighborhoods as the Left Bank, Les Halles, and even the Ile de la Cité, this last being the island in the Seine that serves as the historic core of Paris, offering its citizens new streets that help relieve some of the burden of urban density, as well as allow greater flow of traffic. But as is often the case with government funding, the money eventually ran out, and Barthelot was no longer able to continue with his ambitious plans. It would be some years before the city's problems were tackled yet again, only this time they'd be dealt with once and for all. Louis-Philippe would prove to be the last ever French monarch, as he was deposed in the February Revolution in 1848. In his place, Louis-Napoléon Bonaparte, the nephew of the former Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, was elected the first president of the so-named French Second Republic. Upon being sworn in, he promised to improve the lives of the country's ordinary citizens, beginning, he famously pledged, with those living in the capital. Though he'd spent much of his formative years in exile, far away from Paris, namely in Switzerland, Britain, and the United States, he'd been particularly taken with the layout of London, with its green spaces, public squares, and wide streets. It was this city he tried to emulate, when, in a speech in 1852, he famously declared that, quote, Paris is the heart of France. Let us apply our efforts to embellishing this great city. Let us open new streets, make the working-class quarters, which lack air and light, healthier, and let the beneficial sunlight reach everywhere within our walls. In fact, the first civic project he undertook was to subsidize housing for Parisian workers on the Rue Rochechouart at the foot of Montmartre. Within the first few years of his presidency, he called for the completion of Barthelot's Rue de Rivoli, as well as the transformation of the Bois de Boulogne, the Boulogne Forest, essentially open woods right in the middle of the city, into a large public park, which would be modeled after London's Hyde Park. But that wasn't all. In 1852, with the expiration of his term, and he, being the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, was ever so ambitious, Louis-Napoleon staged a coup d'état, and after rounding up his opponents and arresting them, or else sending them into exile, he declared himself emperor. Thus, under the new title of Emperor Napoleon III, he set to work on improving his capital and the living conditions of its citizenry. To do this, he fired the former prefect of the Seine, Jean-Jacques Berger, 
and appointed one Georges-Eugène Haussmann, a native of the Alsace region on the French-German border, in Berger's place. Assuming command of the post on June 22, 1853, the emperor, a week later, famously showed Haussmann a map of the city and faithfully declared that he, quote, give it air and open space to connect and unify the different parts of the city into one whole and to make it more beautiful. With this task in mind, Haussmann set to work. His first order of business was to create what the emperor himself had referred to as un grand croisé de Paris, a great cross in the center of Paris, that would, quote, permit easier communication from east to west along the Rue de Rivoli and the Rue Saint-Antoine, with the north-south communication along two proposed boulevards, the Strasbourg and the Sébastopol. To do this, the Rue de Rivoli had to be completed, a daunting task given how the emperor wished to have it completed by the Paris Universal Exposition two years later. It was a challenge that Haussmann clearly had no trouble accepting, for he'd not only completed on time, but he'd also crowned the achievement with the construction of the first luxury hotel in the city, the Grand Hôtel de Louvre, now the Louvre Saint-Honoré, which would house imperial guests. To do this, a team of some 3,000 workers labored day and night on both the Rue de Rivoli and the hotel, which were completed in March of 1855, just in time for the exposition. Several decrepit old buildings, some of which had stood since medieval times, were completely razed, and an even greater number of narrow, twisting streets were completely erased from the Parisian map. Now that the east-west axis had been completed, Haussmann commanded his attention to the north-south axis. The first streets that came into fruition in this part of the project were the Boulevard de Strasbourg and the Boulevard Sébastopol. These new wide thoroughfares would cut straight through some of the most crowded sections in the city, including one that had suffered a cholera epidemic some years prior. Not only that, but the neighborhood had been the scene of civil unrest throughout much of the 19th century. It was the gutting of old Paris, Haussmann famously recalled in his memoirs, of the neighborhood of riots and of barricades from one end to the other. Naturally, there were those who opposed such radical changes. The famed symbolist poet Charles Baudelaire addressed his concerns in a fantastic cycle of poems called Les Fleurs du Mal, The Flowers of Evil, in which he gave voice, as he put it, to the addicted and the damned who'd be displaced by Elsman's renovation. Regardless, the demolition of the old neighborhoods went as planned. Four years later, in 1859, the Boulevard Sébastopol was complete, and much like the Rue de Rivoli before it, it too was crowned with something new, the Place du Châtelet, a large public square located on the right bank of the Seine. But that was only the first phase of the renovation. While Haussmann had built some six miles, or 9,467 meters of new boulevards in those first few years, his job was far from over. In all, those six thoroughfares alone had cost an astronomical 278 million francs. An official report from the French Parliament in 1859 had found that the improvements had indeed, quote, brought air, light, and healthiness and procured easier circulation in a labyrinth that was constantly blocked and impenetrable, where streets were winding, narrow, and dark. In addition, much of the public was happy with the results, and the project had put thousands of Parisians to work. The second phase promised to do more of the same, though it was considerably more ambitious in scale. The plan was to construct a network of wide boulevards that would lead to the center of the city, as well as to the new railroad stations that the emperor deemed, quote, the real gates of Paris. In all, the second phase would add some 16 miles, 26,294 meters, of new roads at a cost of 180 million francs. It would see the near-total reconfiguration of such neighborhoods as the left and right banks, and even the Ile de la Cité, the historic core of Paris. While the island in the Seine became one big construction site in the ensuing years, the left and right banks were totally carved up, with the addition of such wide streets as the Boulevard Saint-Michel and the Boulevard Raspel, with existing parks and green spaces either being redesigned or, in some cases, replanted. It was this part of the second phase that caused some controversy amongst Parisians, specifically the cutting of large swaths of the Jardin de Luxembourg, essentially a large garden built by one of the Medicis in the early 17th century, to make way for the Boulevard Raspel, 
Up to that point, Osman had been careful not to tamper with some of the more historically significant structures in the city, and while he tried to do as little damage to the Jardin de Luxembourg as possible, he still ended up having to move the majestic fountain further into the park, and even went as far as to add statuary and a long water basin to make up for the changes. In the end, the people of Paris seemed to be satisfied with the changes, though it's easy to see why they'd been concerned. And what of the emperor throughout all of this? By 1860, Osman's improvements and beautifications had caused Napoleon III to begin looking hungrily at the outskirts of Paris. That same year, the monarch annexed a total of 11 communes, essentially outlying towns and villages, with the intent of expanding the city. Needless to say, the residents of these communes weren't all that thrilled to be under Parisian jurisdiction. After all, being part of the city would mean higher taxes and the loss of their independent status, though ultimately they had no choice but to accept. Of course, neither he nor Ausman put up any fights regarding these acquisitions, as the revenue would mean funding for the public works that were already well underway. But with this negative came a positive. Up to that point, factories and workshops had been established in these outlying areas, away from the hustle and bustle of Paris. The higher taxes these facilities would now have to pay meant that they wouldn't be able to expand into the city proper, which was something the city council desperately wished to avoid. It's for this reason that the French capital is, to this day, considerably devoid of industrial complexes, much admittedly to the relief of yours truly. Over the ensuing nine years, the number of arrondissements in the city had gone from 12 to 20, the number at which it stands today, thanks to the annexation. By 1869, the second phase had been completed, with the left and right banks as well as the Ile de la Cité being virtually unrecognizable when compared to how they'd looked before. That same year, Ausman announced his plans for a third phase, though this was met with considerably more opposition than the first two, due in large part to the quote-unquote liberalization of the empire. In 1860, the year of the annexation, Napoleon III had allowed Parliament a greater role in all matters political. This included providing a voice for his opposition, the so-named Republicans, who'd been critical of the emperor and his regime from the start. With their newfound representation, they focused their attacks on Ausman himself, claiming that the renovation and revitalization of Paris was all well and good, but that it was all a smokescreen for other, more pressing concerns. Being the larger-than-life figure he was, Ausman merely shrugged them off and proceeded with his plans. The third phase would see the renovation of the Jardin des Champs-Élysées, a large public park that had served as the site of the Paris Exposition back in 1855. Originally built in 1667 in the traditional French style, the renovation would see it not only expanded, but also reconfigured in the English style, complete with flower beds, winding paths, and tree groves. In addition, the famed Paris Opera House was built during this phase, and has since become an enduring and beloved Parisian landmark. The Boulevard Saint-Germain, too, would go up at this time, and is now one of the city's main and busy thoroughfares. Several other projects were proposed as well, though Ausman wouldn't be able to see them through. Remember those pesky Republicans in Parliament who were critical of Napoleon III's regime? Well, they soon began questioning how Ausman had gotten his funding, and it was later revealed that he'd obtained said money illegally. While he'd gone through official channels like banks and wealthy investors, the problem was that he hadn't obtained permission from the Legislative Assembly before borrowing. Thus, the vouchers he'd used to get the funds had to be chalked up to debt, which the city of Paris reluctantly agreed to pay back over the course of the ensuing 79 years. The cost? A whopping 465 million francs. And what would become of Ausman himself? As the Republicans gained more power in Parliament, most notably during the spring elections of 1869, Napoleon III at last caved into their demands and chose a member from within their ranks to be his prime minister. At this point in time, the emperor was too weak to argue, as he was in poor health due to gallstones, no doubt exacerbated from stress caused by the mounting conflict that would grow into the Franco-Prussian War. The new prime minister, Émile Olivier, had been notoriously critical of both the emperor and especially Haussmann throughout the third phase of the renovation, and he now called for his resignation. 
Naturally, Osman refused, but he was ultimately let go by the emperor himself. So it was that the renovation came to an end. As for Napoleon III's regime, its days too were numbered. In the autumn of 1870, the emperor was captured in battle by the Germans during the Franco-Prussian War, and his government was toppled. He'd go on to live another three years before ultimately succumbing to his poor health on January 9, 1873, while in exile in London. As for Ausmann, he lived out the rest of his days in relatively quiet solitude in the city he'd worked so hard to rebuild, a reviled and even hated man by both the Republicans and their supporters. But don't feel too bad for him. Today, most Parisians will tell you that he was a hero, a national treasure who not only renovated their beloved city inasmuch as he completely transformed it into a sparkling gem, the envy and wonder of urban centers both in Europe and abroad. In fact, so influential was he in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that he even inspired an entire movement. Known as the City Beautiful Movement, it emphasized beauty and civic harmony through majestic and monumental architecture, the most famous example being the proposed Burnham Plan for Chicago. Daniel Burnham, a Chicago-based architect, turned to Ausmann's renovations of Paris in his own 1909 treatise, which would transform the dirty, congested Midwestern city into, quote, the Paris of the Prairie. But while Ausmann had had little interference in carrying out his own plans, Burnham was only able to achieve but a few of his proposed plans for Chicago. Still, it just goes to show the impact and influence that this one man had, not just in France, but throughout the world. Both loved and later reviled in his own time, Ausmann is now considered one of those legendary figures in history who quite literally moved mountains so as to achieve greatness. It's difficult to imagine what the city of Paris would look like without his visionary genius and forward-looking gaze. Thanks to him, the city now boasts an incredible number of parks and green spaces, monumental architecture worthy of a capital city, and wide avenues and boulevards that can accommodate both foot and auto traffic. Daniel Burnham, that self-same Chicago architect who was so heavily inspired by Ausmann, famously quipped, quote, Make no little plans, they have no magic to stir men's blood. It's a philosophy that Ausmann himself would no doubt appreciate, and, as we've seen, he clearly would have taken to heart. Thanks for listening. I do so hope you enjoyed this episode. If you've been to Paris, then you've seen for yourself the impact Ausmann has had on the city, and just how beautiful it is. His legacy is most definitely assured then, and can be appreciated by future generations. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a supporter. Just visit podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash history loves company, all one word, and click the support button, which will take you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing help me out as well so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in again next week for the ancient Roman winter holiday that heavily inspired Christmas, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.